0: Welcome to the Learning Shared podcast. So Learning Shared is a space for anyone with an interest in supporting the needs of vulnerable learners in our society, including those with special educational needs and disabilities. We'll be hearing from and talking with a wide range of colleagues and stakeholders, including teachers, specialist practitioners, school leaders, researchers, as well as parents and carers be sharing creative inspiring ideas effective practice and things they've learned along their journey with that in mind please get in touch if you'd like to suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to be involved in any way you can visit us at www.learningshared.org or tweet us at underscore learningshared. The Learning Share podcast is brought to you by Evidence for Learning and the EFL Send community. This is a growing community of teachers, practitioners, school leaders, researchers and academics that support children, young people and adults with special educational needs and disabilities, or indeed any form of additional learning needs. You can find out more about the EFL Send community and Evidence for Learning at www.evidenceforlearning.net. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, in this episode, Professor Barry Carpenter and Bev Cobill give a lecture entitled What You Really Need to Know About Engagement. If you're listening to the audio only version of the episode, then there's a link to a video of Barry and Bev's presentation on the Learning Shared website at www.learningshared.org and If you select episode 17, you'll be able to watch and listen to the slideshow. On the episode page, we've also listed links to various articles and resources that you might find useful and interesting for further reading around engagement.
1: Welcome to this episode in Learning Shared, the podcast series from Evidence for Learning. Today, with my colleague Bev Coble, we're going to consider the topic of engagement. Engagement is very current, um, and we're going to explore various dimensions of engagement. We're going to look at the genesis of engagement, its development in recent years, and the contribution it's made to education, both in the UK and internationally. We're going to take a multidimensional perspective, examining the contribution of engagement to child development, to pedagogy, to the processes of teaching and learning, and to formative assessment. And all of this will lead us to the exciting development arising from the Rochford Review proposals of the engagement model for statutory summative assessment, which will be effective from September 2021. So we've titled this podcast What You Really Need to Know About Engagement. So we're trying to paint a a full picture, a vibrant picture of of engagement and the the numerous applications that it can have, the multi-contributions that it can make to children of all abilities and of all ages. For me the real deep involvement with engagement came from the time that I was national director, leading the DfE funded research project on children with complex learning difficulties and disabilities. And having defined that population, that group of children that in common parlance in schools had become those with complex needs, we went on and asked the question, well, If these are the children, what are their needs? And when we know what those needs are, how does that inform the way we teach based on the way that they learn? But first of all, to just remind ourselves what complex needs are. To have complex needs, complex learning difficulties and disabilities to give it its full term, You have to have, or the child has to have, two or more coexisting, overlapping, interlocking, compounding learning difficulties or disabilities. Those do not have to necessarily be an intellectual disability. So it could be a child, say, with a mental health need who also has epilepsy. It could be a student with a physical disability and a visual impairment, but is actually very high attaining in the school system. Complex needs can also co-occur. So not every child is born with the multiplicity of needs that you would call complex needs. Some children progress very well through the primary stage, and then things begin to change as they become adolescents. This is particularly so, for example, with children with autism, who with the onset of adolescence, we know that, for example, 70% of children, students with autism during adolescence develop a mental health need. So that child could have pro- progressed very well through the school system, uh, having lots of structured approaches to support their autism, but actually being a very successful learner. However, the onset of adolescence and the Uh, co-occurring emergence of mental health needs could mean that that child begins to find school very challenging and learning very difficult. All of this, therefore, brings about a unique and changing pattern of learning. There is nothing static about complex needs because there, there are these dynamics interfacing and therefore changing all the time. Ultimately, that means that the in the attainments of these students are inconsistent. Some of our previous measures of attainment and achievement for children with special educational needs were difficult to implement with this new generation of children. Because it's really in this 21st century, we have seen uh, the rise of the number of prematurely born children, for example, coming through the system. Prematurely born children are the, now the largest group of children on any school's special needs register. School may not always realize that because the charm have a diagnosis of autism, of ADHD, of speech and language difficulties. But the causal base, the reason for those particular needs could be prematurity of, of birth. And certainly with modern medical progress, more children are surviving pre-28 weeks gestation. We've also seen a rise in conditions such as fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, more children with rare syndromes, with genetic chromosomal deletions. So we have this changing pattern, and it is timely, and the Rothschild Review has captured this in so many ways, it is timely that we look at new ways of capturing the attainment and achievement of children that we now call those with complex needs in our school system. These children, therefore, will have ultimately what I would call a spiky profile. Any child with special educational needs, by dint of the definition of special educational needs, has an uneven profile of development. But for those with complex needs, in some areas they can attain very highly, in other areas they will find progress very difficult and challenging. And some of that could be to do with the way their brain is configured. A specific example of that would be in mathematics, children with born prematurely will find mathematics challenging because if they were born before 28 weeks, the parietal lobe, the area of the brain that deals with numeracy and mathematical computation, may not be well developed. And it's similar in children with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder or, who in the main find numeracy and mathematics more challenging in in the curriculum. And it's to do with brain functioning. And again, I would just emphasize the need for teachers increasingly to understand the neurobiology of the brain of the child with special educational needs and to understand through neuroscience what impact um, birth and environmental factors have on the profile and development of the brain of the child with complex needs. So a spiky profile. All of this within one child. Peaks and troughs. What we're seeing within this new generation of children in this 21st century is actually a a vulnerability. This is consistent across the group. It's for me the one word that unifies that group of children because nothing else does. It is their vulnerability. Their vulnerability as learners. They are vulnerable children And therefore, they are fragile learners. They are not always confident. Their self-efficacy, their belief in themselves as learners, is not always rich. And they're often vulnerable through what I would call the three Ds. Disadvantage, deprivation, and disability. And you can plot that where you want, under that continuum of vulnerability. But for some children, they have all three Ds. Just imagine the child with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, who had a disadvantaged experience in utero during the mother's pregnancy. Because the mother was consuming large quantities of alcohol, it was a toxic pregnancy. Growth and development in utero may have been impaired in in many ways, physically and mentally. Then that child is born, and because mother by then is an alcoholic, Often the child does not remain with its biological mother and is taken into the into the care system, perhaps placed with foster parents. And therefore some attachment issues may begin to emerge because of some of the deprivation they experience in early childhood. Even in good foster homes, they could be experiencing multiple foster homes because fairly early on it may be detected the child has some special educational needs and that's under investigation. And so the child may not be going forward for adoption. And ultimately, when the child does get a diagnosis of of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, then they have uh, a real profile of special educational need, of actually a very complex set of needs. So that child with FASD will be disadvantaged, deprived and disabled and very vulnerable and vulnerable as a learner in our school system. So what I've said so far can be summarised in, in these documents. The one to your left at the, at the top is actually the final report of the Complex Learning, Difficulties and Disabilities Research Project as it was presented to the then Secretary of State. Um, emerging from that work, once we had defined who were the children, what are the ways in which we could teach them according to their needs profile, It was very obvious that there were considerable training implications for teachers at all levels in the profession from initial teacher training right through to master's level. And so, um, we were commissioned to write uh, some training materials and these have been published online. You can see the website there and they are free. And there are 16 modules of teacher training covering such things as child development, which is often not a component of teacher training these days through to, um, communication, augmentative and alternative communication, through to inquiry-based approaches in the module on neuroscience. Um, so there's there's a richness there to support teacher development. And then subsequently in 2015, we put together the the book on engaging learners with complex learning difficulties and disabilities published by Routledge, which built on the work of the original research project with further case studies of children with examples of school development, and there's been some really rich uh, and wonderful school leadership taking schools forward from perhaps their traditional definitions uh, in the special school sector in particular, to new definitions that reflect more the needs profile of 21st century learners with complex needs. And then of course we've latterly had the Rochford Review, uh, which reported in 2016, and one of their recommendations was the engagement model that engagement could be used for statutory summative assessment. This has been taken forward. Um, things have been somewhat um, delayed because of Brexit negotiations because of the pandemic. Um, and eventually it is intended that by September 2021, that um, this will become the engagement model will become statutory summative assessment in schools. And, Broadly, the engagement model equates to P scales P1 to P4. But if we leave it there, we narrow the potential of engagement, because also in the Rotterdam Review, it talks about pupils not engaged in subject-specific learning. Well, that is a group of children whom we certainly need some wraparound assessment tool that will enable us to illuminate not only the learning pathways, but the outcomes in terms of attainment and achievement. And the uh, opportunities that engagement present for that group of students are very rich. Indeed, I would say that as an outcome of the pandemic and the number of uh, pupils who have had a long period of time out of the school system, uh, there may be many more children not engaged in subject-specific learning for whom the engagement model may be very helpful. And to my mind, the engagement model is now the assessment response to when we used engagement for pedagogy and for servicing the needs of this new generation of children in our school system. So it's, it's built on that work. There's a clear thread of, of continuity and progression in the development of engagement in the system. And of course, it will include those learners with profound and multiple learning difficulties who Uh, will not always be able to access the more traditional curriculum. So it's presenting a really rich array of opportunity for children who may not have always had their needs uh, truly assessed, not have always had their attainments and achievements truly celebrated to actually have good quality recognition. So how does uh, complex needs how does engagement support children's learning? Because, as I implied earlier, these are vulnerable children and therefore they are fragile learners. Just during this pandemic period, Barnardo's have declared that we have a 44% increase in the numbers of children going into foster care during the coronavirus. We know that uh, children in care, however good the support is, are more likely to have attachment issues, for example. And those attachment issues will impact on their learning. There are several studies currently taking place on the uh, attainments and future outcomes of students that have been in the care system. And we certainly know that 50% of children with attachment issues will develop lifelong mental health needs, from those those child years. So to have an approach that can penetrate some of the difficulties that this group of children may have, which engagement indeed can, is going to be very helpful in our repertoire of responses, in rebuilding our schools and in rebuilding our communities of practice and of learning when children return to the school system and we begin to move on from the tragedy that has been the global pandemic. Obviously, engagement doesn't stand alone. It interfaces with differentiation and with personalization. Those are the two key tenets that we've worked to in the last 20 years. Differentiation particularly arising from the national curriculum, its original inceptions, but with the definition of differentiation as the process of adjusting teaching to meet individual needs. Um, And that has been built on particularly by the 2015 Code of Practice, which talked more about personalizing. Um, learning for children and we need the child to be enveloped particularly the child with complex needs to be enveloped as an engaged learner because their capacity to to disengage frankly to switch off it is very great indeed so really we have this triangle of of pedagogical principles differentiation personalization and engagement all pulsating hopefully harmoniously around the child to encourage that child to be an effective learner and a successful learner. We have to set engagement within the context of a new generation pedagogy, new generation pedagogy for new generation children. And those pedagogies will embrace everything that we have done to date, all of the good practice we have to date, We may have to re-engineer it, as the the literature talks about re-engineering of curriculum. I would simplify that to say we may have to tweak. Adjusting and modification is like part of the everyday toolkit of the teacher working with the child with special and complex needs. And we'll need to reconcile some of our approaches that have been very successful before to the needs profile of children with complex needs, which may lead to the creation of some new and innovative Teaching strategies. And from those more personalized teaching strategies built on engagement, we don't just need personalized learning. We need personalized assessment pathways. And engagement offers that ability to wrap around the child, to touch that child at their point of learning need, to capture their attainment and achievement and to celebrate it. And obviously a wonderful way of doing that is for the evident through the evidence for learning app which can be so um, versatile in going to where the child is at, wherever that place and space may be, and really looking through a a lens that becomes increasingly personalised and capturing both the formative and then subsequently the summative assessment of the child as it goes through a responsive and dynamic curriculum, teaching and learning experience. So in this 21st century, to pull all of that together in one statement, we need what I would call a blended pedagogy, differentiation and personalization that will envelop that child with special needs, complex needs, as an active learner, but engagement is the bedrock. Constantly the touchstone for the teacher, the question in their head should be, is this child engaged, actively engaged? Not as a peripheral participant sitting on the sidelines watching the learning of others, but as an active participant engaged in the dynamic at the heart of the classroom experience. I want to go through just a little bit of the literature in terms of the building blocks. So just some key quotes, nothing too dense, just some key quotes that help you to appreciate the history of um, engagement, that it has been trialed in many countries, not just this country, and even in the days before we began to use it for the Complex Learning Difficulties and Disabilities Research Project, it had a life in other settings too. When we conducted an international literature review as part of the um, project that I'm referring to, then we discovered this quote, that engagement sets the occasion for optimal learning to occur. If a student is not engaged, they're not going to learn. And that applies to every learner of every ability. The A-level physics student uh, who may want to study that subject at university, unless they engage in the A-level syllabus, isn't going to get the grade to get onto the university course. The GCSE student, who may want to study um, English at A-level, unless they get a higher grade in English and engage through engaging with the syllabus, will not be able to get the grade they need to enter the A-level course. The um, year six student going through their SATs, unless they are confident and achieve well in their SATs, they may find it difficult to access the secondary curriculum. And so it is for the child with autism. If they don't, through good and effective education, acquire some of the social skills needed to function in everyday life, they're going to struggle with some of the social dynamics, both of the classroom and of life outside in the wider community. So engagement is kind of key to the development of the child, of the student, and eventually to the quality of life that can be enjoyed by that young person who then becomes the adult with complex need. When we look specifically at the use of engagement uh, across settings internationally for students with special needs and disabilities, the research showed us there that engaged behaviour is the single best predictor of successful learning. So why wouldn't we use it? Why wouldn't it be there, as I said earlier, as a bedrock, underpinning our planning in teaching and learning, fundamentally being the yardstick through which we judge the attainment and achievement of our children and young people. Engagement for learning is key. Indeed, we've set up a a website by that name, Engagement for Learning, and you'll find lots of the the tools and um, profiles we suggest in this presentation uh, on that website. But sustainable learning can only occur when there is meaningful engagement. The process is a journey that connects the child, the student, to their environment, in that it includes people, the teachers, teaching assistants, ideas, materials, concepts to enable both learning and ultimately achievement as an outcome of successful learning. My colleague Bev Cogill will explore later in this presentation, the uh, engagement profiles and the um, five areas of engagement proposed in the engagement model by uh, the Rockford Review and the subsequent work and trials that have been conducted at the DFE. But in this snapshot, we just want to show that in the original incarnation of the engagement profile, resulting from the Complex Learning Difficulties and Disabilities Research Project, we actually had seven indicators of engagement. And then through the further trials that have been conducted, uh, once the DfE commissioned a rollout of the recommendations in 2016 from the Rocher Review, it's, it has combined some of that um, earlier work into five areas of engagement. If you like, five lenses through which we can observe the child monitor child progress, monitor child response to um, learning, and ultimately form judgments about the attainment and achievement of the child within those five areas. And you'll see, if you look to the right there, that um, we've shown you how some of the earlier language has not been lost because there is a strong evidence base, secure evidence base, for using that language, but um, for the purposes of a summative assessment process, some of that language, such as discovery and responsiveness and curiosity and investigation, has been combined to lead to a heading such as exploration or realisation. This is the engagement profile. Um, so in the same structure that was originally developed uh, and reported in the Uh, report from the Complex Needs Project that went to the Secretary of State, Um, and here we have the five engagement areas um, against that profile, and this can be a very flexible tool, very useful for for baselining, for observing, as well as ongoing and systematic recording in a formative way, leading to summative judgments. This is a a version that we've taken from from use in in mainstream um, and how it might be used in in that setting. So this is really a, a tool for assessment that can be used across any setting where there is a child with complex need. It is a summative assessment through the lens of engagement. What I like about that analogy of a lens is that it encourages us to think, uh, in the terms that a photographer would use, of a long lens, that at first when we look at the child, the child may be blurred, but as we turn that lens, the child becomes more sharply in focus. And I, I think of that as the process of teaching, that initially our teaching may touch the child but not truly envelop them and not get the outcomes we were aspiring to for the child. And so we modify, adapt, adjust our teaching process, that process of differentiation. We bring in more personalized elements so it then does truly embrace the child. And then the lens, the focus, becomes very sharp and well-defined and we can capture as an outcome, as an end product, in a summative way, the achievement and attainment of the child. I'm working very much in my thinking to the curriculum being the servant of the child, not its master for too long. We have had approaches that have said to the child, come with me square peg and let me jam you into this round hole. Those days have gone, I hope. Yet we can now say, come with me child, with all of your wonderful achievements, let me capture them and let me celebrate them with you, for you, for your family. And for your wider community. It's down to you ultimately, as the skilled, intuitive teacher, to lift that mask of, of fear and disenfranchisement from the child. My words there are carefully chosen because at the moment I'm seeing, particularly in this pandemic period, lots of fear in the eyes of the child. And that fear will affect brain development in children. And many children will be switched off from learning. You've got to find a way of of re-engaging that disengaged child, that child who's disenfranchised, who's switched off the curriculum, switched off school. They've known learning at home. And for some children, the return to school, the reabsorption into the school system may not be an easy one. And so through the process of engagement, you can engage the child as a learner once more, because engagement is the liberation of intrinsic motivation. Within every child, there lurks that intrinsic motivation. But for many children, it is masked. It is masked by the experiences of, of deprivation. It is masked by the tragedy that is disengagement um, is from life and from learning. And we can lift through our gentle teaching through our persuasive teaching through our stimulating and motivating teaching we can re-engage that child and liberate that intrinsic motivation engagement actually can encourage the what is known in the literature, the flow of learning that brings deep satisfaction and there i'm thinking of, of the child who Um, in a primary classroom who may have become totally absorbed in a creative writing activity and that when the end of the school morning session was concluding and the teacher had asked the class to line up at the door ready to go to lunch, the teacher turns around and finds that child still writing at their desk. And the child isn't being disobedient. They just haven't heard the instruction to line up to go to lunch. They were so deeply absorbed Totally fulfilled by that creative writing. They were in the flow. And that flow brings deep satisfaction, as it says in the quote there, but actually contributes to the positive mental health because they're getting deep, fulfilling rewards from that process of, of learning. And that's about authentic and deep engagement. Because without engagement, there is no deep learning. There's no effective teaching or meaningful outcome. There is no real attainment or quality progress. And now, through the uh, outcomes of the Rotterdam Review, the opportunities that new legislation is going to give us, through the work that we've done in the Complex Needs Project and the, the tremendous work that schools have done since that report first came out, to embrace this new body of learners, those with complex needs, in our schools. At all of those levels mentioned there, engagement makes a really meaningful contribution. So it's something for a whole school approach, not just a summative assessment model for a few children. It may work well for those few children as their summative assessment, but engagement has a broader contribution to make to the teaching, learning and development of all children within a school system. It is essential actually to the effective and efficient learning of all children and particularly in this pandemic period where we need now to start to work to the recovery of our children post-pandemic. We've seen children who have been disruptive and their lives have been disrupted by the pandemic. They feel disorientated, they're not confident as learners and certainly we're going to get a whole population of children in all our school settings who return disengaged, who've not had positive experiences perhaps of home learning, perhaps there was not the um, technology to support home learning, perhaps there was not the parental support around, Um, and we know from studies that that is so across all areas uh, of our society, that where perhaps two parents had busy jobs of their own, there was little time at home to give to support their child. All of that I see as developing a profile in the child which is frail, Fragile and fragmented, they'll be frail in their belief, their self-efficacy as a, as a learner. The learning pathways in the brain, the neural pathways, will be fragile because those children have gone through adverse childhood experiences to be locked down, or as one year five child, I think with a slip of the tongue inadvertently defined it when I was interviewing them for uh, for a piece of research, said that they'd been locked in. That's how lockdowns have felt to many of our children. They've been locked in. Childhood has been kind of suspended for many of them. And therefore, their their learning pathways in the brain are not robust. They are fragile. And we need to intervene to, to rebuild the capacity of the brain to function actively and creatively. And they will have returned to school with fragments of learning, however good the home learning has been however wonderful the lessons you prepared were, however conscientiously the parent delivered that home learning and supported their child, it was not the interactive and cohesive learning that they would have had in your classroom. And your task will be to, to interconnect those fragments, a bit like a jigsaw. So frail, fragile, and fragmented. And anxiety is pervading the learning capacity of so many of our children. To put that into an engagement model and to consider the learning pathways. If you believe in engagement, you have to believe in its antithesis, which is to be disengaged. So our quest, our mission, our journey has to be one of re-engagement. And so we will be intervening to encourage that re-engagement process, to take that child on that journey through partial engagement, to more sustained engagement, to leading to full engagement. And the intervention might be a literacy-based one, but that is dealing with emotions because this has been an emotional time for us all and especially for our children who haven't always comprehended some of the many changes that have gone on in in our lives. Some of those interventions may be about social skills or mental well-being or maybe about some very conventional curriculum, but it's pitch and paste in particular ways to accommodate... The, the learning strengths of the child, because as Ofsted has reported, we have children in mental distress. We have children not with the stamina to get through the traditional lesson length, say of 60 minutes, um, to actually engage deeply in a way that they used to. We need to not only rebuild our school communities within that, we need to rebuild each child as an engaged learner. So to just pull some of that together, we've got here um, an engagement approach that can be formative, it can be used as an initial baseline, it can profile a child's needs, and then it leads to engagement scales. If you go to the Engagement for Learning website, you will see those, and so it can be a baseline. It could be that you just use engagement with some children as intervention until you, d- you judge that they are authentically engaged again. And that can all be achieved through the five areas in the summative model that is being uh, brought in uh, and training is happening around the country uh, at the time we're recording this podcast. And I want to introduce you to my colleague, Bev Cobill. Bev was part of the original Complex Learning Difficulties and Disabilities research team for the DfE project and so worked nationally across a range of schools, gathering information and data uh, as part of that project. Um, She then became uh, instrumental in the development of the complex needs training materials, and indeed has carried on that training element in her role in the intervening years. She now works and is based at Chadsworth School, where she's the complex needs coordinator, not only for the school, but working out of the school through its support service particularly with disengaged learners, with children who are out of school and not in the conventional system, um, maybe because of the severity of their autism or of their complex needs, their mental health needs. Uh, and Bev is using the engagement approach really to reach out to the hard to reach. Over to you, Bev.
2: Thank you, Barry. We'll now move on to the uh, engagement model, looking at the five areas and the tools that you may possibly uh, use to assess. So this is how it looks as Barry has previously shown you, the areas of engagement, and we're going to now look at each individual area to see how that looks for each one. So looking at exploration, Uh, The Rochford Review gives you these definitions, which you can see on the right-hand side. In the bubble uh, is the engagement for learning uh, from our website. These are shortened definitions, which give you some key questions. And What we like to say there is they're probes to act as a lens to judge your engagement observations. So the government have have put a guidance uh, on their website, and you can see all of these uh, five areas very clearly written out, as you can see on the the right-hand side. So exploration, it's about becoming more established, can be classed as established when the pupil shows continued interest in a resource activity repeatedly, i.e., in a different time of day, or a different place, or with different people. Barry and I uh, took the research to Australia, New Zealand, and Australia liked a more visual uh, look with, with the different areas, and so this is an example of their exploration, and and it, it, it does. It is very effective on the classroom wall, very quick for people to just have a quick glance and understand uh visually what exploration means to them. So we move on to a, a short video now looking at at this young man and and it, it probes the question: Does the pupil show interest in the activity? Is he curious? So as you can see, the teacher's objective there was uh, mark-making, but he wasn't ready for mark-making. He was investigating, he was, he was exploring that sponge and paint, and that's to be celebrated. He's not ready to move on. Moving on, we'll look at realisation, so as it stays there. Will they display behaviours that show they want more control of the stimulus or activity? For example, by stopping it or trying to make changes to it. We class this, as it states there, for our probe, a light bulb moment. How does the pupil interact with a new stimulus or activity? Do they show realisation, surprise, delight, amazement or even fear? Is the pupil beginning to understand that a particular skill or resources can be used in a range of contexts? Here again is Australia's visual uh, version of realisation, looking at that light bulb moment, look out, I am getting another bright idea, I love the taste of rain, that recognition. So let's take a look at this young man who he's had the resources presented to him that are meaningful and make sense to him to enable him to complete a job for the teacher and empower him. It's very important. He's he's very confident. He's got his photographs there informing him what he has to collect for the science lesson. Let's just take a look. So as you can see there and here, a busy environment, it's mainstream school, where he's been able to tune out that busyness because he's the connections have been made for him. He's got, he's got his own personalised learning pathway there using his photographs, which enable him to complete the task. Moving on to anticipation. So anticipation becomes more established when the pupil shows awareness that a familiar activity is about to start or finish. So we're looking for positives here, positive response to learning, positive response to classroom routines, personal self-task management, and sequence their learning and can self-regulate classroom behavior. And in our probe there, Predict, is the pupil able to anticipate those familiar activities? Do they need cues or prompts? Let's take a look at this young lady who's anticipating her next turn with the balloon. So you can see her hand going up, looking up at the teacher. Let's take a look. In this clip, do you think the pupil was able to um, anticipate familiar activities about to start and finish? Did she need those cues or prompts to support her awareness? Persistence. So, persistence becomes more established when the pupil shows a determined effort to interact with the stimulus or activity. So, it's about that continued effort. Does the pupil show perseverance or determination? Trying to find out more about the activity. Do they sustain their attention in the activity? Do they respond and act on feedback? Are they prepared to fail? Do we prepare them to fail? They can actively try to find out more and interact with it. Resilience in learning routines. Can they cope with the pitch and pace of a lesson? Let's take a look at at these two young people. Let's see if they can actively try to find out more and interact with each other. So I think you'll agree there, this shows that pupils could sustain their attention in the activity for long enough so they could actively find out more and interact with each other. Initiation. This shows how much and the different ways a pupil can investigate and can act spontaneously and independently during the familiar activity without waiting for direction. There suggests it's spontaneous. Are they able to prompt another person to do an action? Let's take a look at this young man. He is um, transitioning around the classroom with objects of reference, their pencils, and the teacher is, is just teaching him, it's early days, teaching him to transition to an area by matching the objects of reference to an identical object of reference. But he's spotted the task, and it's a task he knows, he enjoys and can achieve. Moving away from a formal curriculum, the joy of engagement is how you can show a parent how their child is engaged today. Parent portal is on the evidence for learning. It's perfect for this purpose. The use of video can aid recording and reporting immensely. Maybe setting up the video and letting it run throughout the session enables staff to pick up on all sorts of things they may have missed. Reviewing such video evidence can provide an excellent focus for team meetings and, of course, can be legitimately used as evidence of progress for end-of-year reports and for sharing with parents. Once class teams get used to recording, they will notice notes such as John, track, five seconds. Simple and effective system. In the Evidence for Learning app, this app allows all stakeholders in a child, young person or adult's learning and development, to quickly and easily gather photo and video evidence linked to the individual's learning goal, as well as any key skill framework. And as you can see there, there's a, a gadget there that uh, enables to hold the iPad, and uh, that remote, you place that next to a pupil, and it will follow the pupil around, so it's capturing all of their move, moves. I usually only recommend 3 minutes video as this will capture a wealth of information. So, let's move on to the engagement profile. As we've shown you previously, here are the five areas of engagement. No particular order, you might see initiation before anticipation. There is no expectation that pupils need to demonstrate progress in all five areas. Instead, each of the areas represent what is necessary for pupils to fully engage in their development and reach their full potential. This is our observational uh, assessment, and that is crucial to understanding what the pupil knows and what they can do. It is the most reliable way of building up an accurate picture of how the pupil can demonstrate their learning style and adversely demonstrate difficulties in their learning. By using those five areas, it gives staff a good focus as you can build a good picture of where the pupil is at. This can be used for baseline observation, for intervention or to probe a particular issue in learning versatile. So this is your starting point. You begin, you can do a generic observation and, and look over a good six weeks looking for those five areas. Try and complete all five areas so that it gives you a very good um, Wealth of information for each each area. And here we have some examples. We have Alfie profile here. And in initiation there, we'll self-inducely during lesson. We'll vocalise for the action to start again. So such valuable information is needed for everyone to understand Alfie. Here we have Evie, she's 13 years old in a mainstream school. She has autism and ADHD, always looking for a job, always busy. And so there we have a good picture of of Evie. And, And saying that Evie sits on a wobble chair, does this work effectively as she makes the chair move quite vigorously. Class becomes too noisy. So it's a a good amount of information for all of staff. Here is the engagement uh, website, Barry's mentioned that previously and on there you will see all of the uh, e4l tools on the government guidance that has written um, what the Rochford Review recommends Um, there are no templates. you're able to use these, they are free and downloadable. Once you've done your initial baselines, you may want to continue your baselines, but using the scale, because using the scale, you are able to um, collect uh, numerative data. We've now reduced this to one page. It was previously two because it was more of uh, an inquiry basis. So this was, as Barry has said, it was developed for formative baseline assessment. Rochford Review are, however, quite clear that evidence towards summative assessment against the five areas can be collected in a variety of ways, including transition. For some teachers, this may be one such tool for evidence collection. It's a very simple tool you're looking at those five areas, again, in no particular order. What happened? So you write down, it's like a conversation that you have with yourself or with another colleague. On the far column there, you might put possible uh, strategies. And they can be simple strategies that you would do on a daily basis, probably, but you haven't had the tools previously to write down your evidence. So it could be as simple as turning a light off, moving the child to a different part of the classroom. Once you've written down what you've seen, what you've observed, you then score, and you've got a key there for scoring below. So there's naught to four, no focused, disengaged, emerging, fleeting, partly engaged, mostly engaged and fully engaged. And the definitions for those are underneath. There is a guide on the e4L website to help you work through this. It's not just for tabletop activities, it is for anywhere in school and it is for anyone to use who is working with a child and you are looking for engagement for learning. At a glance, this gave Ofsted a good understanding of progress. It's good for annual reviews. These tools and the Excel graphs show student progress can be shared in reviews and used as a basis for discussion with parents. What you find out about the student's learning will not only relate to this assessment, but can be generalised across other lessons and activities and used to help other students. We have brief impacts also on the E4L website that provide guidance and teaching learning strategies associated with 10 conditions. This progress graph is is a real quick sort of overview of progress. So what data needs to be submitted? The engagement model is the data required by the legislation. Schools do not have to submit data about the achievements and progress. The engagement model is designed to align with Ofsted's education inspection framework, particularly in supporting schools in identifying assessing and meeting the needs of people who are not engaged. The four main areas on an EHCP has become the curriculum framework under the Rochford Review. The only data that the government require is the number of children you are using this model for. I will now hand you back to Barry to summarise and bring the presentation
1: to a close. So Bev's given you some rich practice insights into how to implement engagement, both for observation, for baseline, for intervention, to support pedagogy across the curriculum, for formative assessment, and ultimately summative assessment. As I said earlier, it's down to you. It's down to you as that skilled teacher. It's down to you as the teacher who can liberate the intrinsic motivation of the child. As we begin to rebuild our school communities, engagement is going to be a dynamic because of the statutory implementation from this coming September 2021. But will it influence curriculum? Will it truly help us to bring the disengaged back to the table of learning and re-engage them? Will it enable us to consider carefully the pitch and pace of our lessons? When are children engaged? When are they switched off? What engages them most? What is not engaging them? Will it enable us to find relevance and responsivity? Will it identify when the curriculum is matched or mismatched? engaged or disengaged? Will it ultimately improve the quality of teaching and learning and in so doing bring healing to the child as a learner and hope to the child, to the student for their future? Will it give you some agency in the curriculum, in the pedagogy you use? And always be able to bear in mind the child at the heart of that process of learning. Whose learning is it anyway? It is theirs, and so much has been robbed from them during this pandemic. It is time to give back to them. Ultimately, the child is the driver for us, the motivator for us as teachers in this process. And to end with these words from the Chilean poet, Gabriela Mistral, many things can wait. The child cannot. Now is the time their bones are being formed and their mind is being developed. To them, we cannot say tomorrow. Their name is today.
0: Thank you for listening. The homepage for the podcast is www.learningshared.org. Barry Carpenter's webpage is www.barrycarpentereducation.com and you can email us at learningshared at theteachcloud.net or tweet us at underscore shared. Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss an episode and please do get in touch with feedback if you'd like to either suggest a topic for a future episode or if you'd like to be involved in any way. Finally, you're welcome to join the conversation via one of our online communities of practice. We've got groups on Facebook and LinkedIn and details are on the learning shared web pages. So for now, thanks again for listening. Stay safe and